I'm going to tweet a picture of my tie. The Knights take on the Erie Otters tonight, so I'm wearing a tie today. I know, I'm only on radio, but we wear ties. You should see, Jim Van Horn has some nice, nice ties. But I wore my most inclusive tie today. It's a tie that was actually made years and years ago. This is not a new tie, but it was part of Save the Children. It was made by a girl named Dana, who back in about, I want to say 2000, was 12 years old. She probably has some kids of her own by now, and it's to help children and their families around the world. And I wore this because I knew Donald Trump was addressing people publicly today, and so I wanted to counteract as much of what he would say with my most inclusive tie. It has pictures of kids of every nationality from every country all over the world. And that's why I wore that tie today. I'll tweet out a picture at some point during the show. We're going to talk about Donald Trump in just a moment because I don't know what that was earlier today, but I know it's scary. That's what I do know. First off, though, I have some instructions for anyone who was angry about being wakened by the Amber Alert. Okay? These are very easy instructions to follow. I want you to take your cell phone. Okay, and I want you to find the nearest washroom. So think about where that is. Just take your cell phone. If you were annoyed, if you called police, even if you said something to the effect of, I got wakened last night by some alert. If you said anything like that, I want you to take your cell phone and I want you to walk to the nearest washroom. I want you to walk into that washroom and I want you to walk over to the toilet and I want you to lift the lid. And then I want you to drop the phone in the toilet. And I want you to leave it there for about 20 seconds. And then I want you to reach into that toilet and pull the phone out. Don't flush. Do not flush a phone down a toilet. Pull the phone out, and there should be a garbage or some type of receptacle nearby. Don't throw it in that. Just take the phone that no longer works because it's been in a toilet for 20 seconds. And I want you to take it to your nearest electronics disposal outlet I want you to give it to them and say, here, I apparently don't know how important the function of this phone is, so I shouldn't be using one. Please take this and dispose of it properly. That's why we have these silly little things, these silly little computers that we haul around with us, that we use to call people or text people or reach people. All of the stuff that we do during the course of the day on the phone 99% of it is stupid. It's true. Name something you did that was actually constructive. Well, I texted somebody because I wasn't going to be there to pick up my child at daycare. Good. That's in the 1%. I texted a friend to complain. That's not in there. I googled something. Also not in there. 99% of the stuff that we do is not useful. It's just what we do. 1% is. Contacting somebody when you need to contact them. Telling somebody you can't be there for daycare. The Amber Alert falls into the 1%. And I'm sorry if you were sound asleep and the Amber Alert happened to go off while you were dreaming of whatever it is you were going to do on the weekend or a large magic dragon was chasing you, whatever was happening in your dream. That's what these stupid things are for, these phones. That's what they are there for. So that we can actually say, whoa, this is happening. Okay, I'm going to make sure that I don't play a part in it right now. Because if I do, I'm going to play that part. 
If you had known something about a little girl who has now been murdered, it looks like, uh, then you have no right to complain. So again, drop the phone in a toilet for 20 seconds, reach in, fish it out, take it to an electronics disposal outlet, and give it to them because you apparently don't know what this thing is for. Okay, now that I've said that, let's move on to Donald Trump and some of the things that he's been saying. First, I want to go back in time, a little over two years. Remember the line that Donald Trump used before he was elected? When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. And they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. And it only makes common sense. It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America, and it's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. So here is Donald Trump, even before he became the president of the United States. And by signing the national emergency, something signed many times by other presidents, many, many times, President Obama. In fact, we may be using one of the national emergencies that he signed having to do with cartels, criminal cartels. It's a very good emergency that he signed, and we're going to use parts of it in our dealings on cartels. So that would be a second national emergency, but in that case, it's already in place. And what we want, really want to do is simple. It's not like it's complicated. It's very simple. We want to stop drugs from coming into our country. We want to stop criminals and gangs from coming into our country. And there he is as president of the United States. Very similar things. He's saying the same stuff. But the thing that I think we have to look at here is the justification in all of this, that this has been done many, many times, because I want to deal in a second with what a state of emergency actually is and what it allows you to do. This is not something that you would think would be brought about for a wall. And if you, I cut this down a lot, because if you want to go back and you want to watch over 20 minutes of Donald Trump talking about things, I mean... I don't. Is he saving money not having speechwriters? Because he doesn't use them. And he needs to. He really does. Even if his message, if you find it credible, if you love Donald Trump, if you support Donald Trump, that's fine. You have to agree. He needs to make use of speechwriters. Because he gets caught up in things. And right there, he was justifying doing what he's doing. Calling a state of emergency. He's justifying it. This is done. You have to understand how often this is done. Because his state of emergency deals with building a wall. That's what this is. This is, not a, this is not about, hey, we're being attacked, invaded, whatever words he wants to use. This is about building his wall. This is about putting a check mark in a check, in a little box on a checklist. That's what this is about. And then later on, I want to play you one more clip. Donald Trump justifies things again. The order is signed, and uh, I'll sign the final papers as soon as I get into the Oval Office, and we will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, 
even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court, just like the ban. So he's basically saying this this is going to be challenged right away. The way he justified it during this, I even wonder whether some of his own supporters, whether some of his own people had said, you know what, Mm, this probably isn't the right road to go down. A state of emergency is something very interesting in the United States because this is something that under their legislation has parts that haven't been updated a lot. And that's where you can run into some big problems because there are powers that exist that haven't come up with the times. So essentially what happens is the government's ordinary powers, because you have a state of emergency, aliens have landed, you have been invaded. In other words, it is now wartime. That's the kind of thing. A natural disaster has occurred and people's lives are at stake. That's what a state of emergency in its purest form is. Now, he's right in that a state of emergency can be called for other reasons. There are states of emergency that are even ongoing right now. But in this case, this is not a natural disaster. Aliens have not landed and no one is invading. Even though Donald Trump, the president of the United States, used that word, no one's invading the United States, as he tries to suggest. So because the ordinary powers of a government might be insufficient, you declare a state of emergency, and all of a sudden the government gets greater powers. It's designed to give the government a temporary boost until the emergency passes or until you can change law through normal processes. See, if there's something bad going on, you don't have time. You you have to you have to get in there. You have to you have to do things. So that's why you declare a state of emergency. What happens? Lots of things happen. You can you can get going. You can initialize the military. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen although there are military people along the borders, but if you read through the New York Times and its coverage, you'll see that a lot of those soldiers don't do much. They make camp, they take down camp. They make camp, they take down camp. A lot of them weren't able to go home and see their families over Christmas. For what? What was going on? Nothing. Nothing really was happening. Nothing that wasn't happening before. Uh, The internet is an interesting thing because it hasn't been updated. And so you go back to the Communications Act of 1934 that was then amended in 1942 by Congress. So the Internet was, you know, all the rage in 1942. Uh, I mean, people were emailing back and forth. You know, people were posting salacious pictures. No, they weren't. It was 1942. But because things have not really been updated, the question becomes, okay, well, what power does Donald Trump take over that? And then, again, he's got an opportunity to sanction certain people. He's got an opportunity to make use of military if he wants to. Now, there's no suggestion that he will do this. He wants his wall. And this is the end of that three-week period whereby something had to be decided, or we've got government officials and government employees not making money again, not being paid again. 
So something had to be done. This is what's been done. This is kind of a last resort sort of thing. And to listen to him go on and on and rave and rant, I just, I couldn't believe I was watching a U.S. president. I couldn't believe I was watching the leader of a country. Because normally when somebody stands up as the leader of a country, it's direct. It's not justified and defended backwards as this was. It just didn't make sense. So now we wait and we watch. That's exactly what we do. We wait and we watch because there is a lot of power that comes with a state of emergency. There's no indication that Donald Trump is going to make use of any of those powers available to him, but they're available to him now. This becomes a really strange situation. This is like, let's say you have a fly in your house and the fly lands on something and you go and you grab a queen-size bed and you drop it on the fly to kill it. In my mind, that's what's happened here. And Donald Trump also made mention of the fact that we're very lenient when it comes to drug dealers, that the drug problem could be solved very easily, that other countries have things like the death penalty for drug dealers. And in the United States, they might get a fine. He mentioned those words. And it made me kind of sad because obviously he doesn't understand where drug problems actually come from. And that if you took away all the drug dealers, we would still have drug problems. And the way he was saying it, I hope I heard it wrong, but he didn't seem to get that. Take away all the drug dealers you want. Put every drug dealer in prison. Round them up. If you had an infrared drug dealer camera and you were going to be able to look around and say, yeah, here are all the drug dealers, and you took all of them and you put them away somewhere where they couldn't sell or deal drugs, couldn't even give them to anyone, you know what would happen? We would still have a drug problem. And he didn't seem to understand that, and somehow he got off on it. So, or got off on some tangent about it. So what we were presented with today is a scary situation, in my mind, by the U.S. president. Now we wait to see what happens with it. We'll talk more about other kinds of cameras in a moment. If you want to weigh in on Donald Trump and disagree with me, if you heard any of this, if you've read any of this, simply take a look at a few minutes of it and you'll see what I mean. This was not a presidential address. This was a, well, I guess this is what I'm going to do now. And it just didn't seem to fit. You know what Saturday Night Live will probably do? They'll probably get Alec Baldwin, and he'll probably do something on Saturday night. You know what they should have him do? Just say the same words that Donald Trump said. You don't need to rewrite them. Just say exactly what he said, and it will sound ridiculous enough to get laughs on Saturday night. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Lots of things coming up on the show today. Colin James will be here in a little over a half hour. We'll talk about opening for Stevie Ray Vaughan and George Thorogood. Talk about Colin James sitting across the table as Stevie Ray Vaughan played his guitar. As a young guy, he's got some great stories. Uh, we're also going to talk about the future of the automotive sector in Ontario. There was an announcement this week. We'll be joined by the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade in Ontario. Minister Todd Smith, that comes up in about an hour from now. We'll talk cannabis. We're going to talk the future of transportation. But if you want to talk a little bit about Donald Trump and declaring a national state of emergency in the United States, 
to build a wall. Phone lines are open. 519-643-2222. We'll get to your emails as well in just a moment. Richard, lead us off, please. Good Do you afternoon. like this? Do you like what he's done? Well, he's carrying it to the extreme, but should that surprise you? First of all, I'd like to send a message out to Craig. I really enjoyed Needles on the Record today. Craig, you were bang on when it came to the Amber Alert. Now, for Donald Trump, I'm going to be honest with you, Mike. I don't support concrete brick walls. I never have, and I never will. Even the Gipper didn't support them. But when it comes to see-through steel barriers, Mike, yes, I do support them. But I would not call it a national emergency. I don't believe that the United States of America is being attacked from within. I'll give you one quick example, and I can only give you a Canadian version of it, Mike. But I'll tell you one um, national emergency that we once had in this country, and I fully supported him. Are you sitting down for this one? I'm when, ready. For, when former Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, back in October... Of 1970, he called a national emergency in this country, which at that time was called the War Measures Act. When you start going out and kidnapping politicians, right, like Pierre Laporte, a uh, labor minister, and murdering them, and a British ambassador by the name of James Cross, when you attack our system of uh, government, right, and our democracy, in that particular case, yes, I do support a national emergency. But in this particular case, no, I don't support a national emergency. But once again, I have to say, Mike, I do believe in see-through steel barriers because, after all, you have to protect your sovereignty. But President Donald J. Trump, he just can't leave it at that. He has to go to the extremes. But anyways, right, I just hope that one day the Republicans, right, can get themselves a good, decent leader again, and maybe things can, well, basically get back to normal. But on that note, Mike, you have a good afternoon. You have a good afternoon as well, Richard. Great to have you back. On the air with us. We have an email from Al. Al says, Donald Trump is setting a terrible precedent, and the Republican-led Congress, as always, is letting him do it. But presidential abuse of the use of a national emergency can work both ways. Check this out. Al says, at some point, the Democrats will be in the White House, and the GOP will cry bloody murder if climate change is deemed a national emergency or the next school shooting prompts a Democratic president to call gun control as national imperative. Let the pendulum swing. Huh? Al's not wrong. He is not wrong. You want to fight fire with fire? That's where it comes from. And that's what happens. You can't diminish a state of emergency, because that's what's happening here in my mind. A state of emergency is used so that you can get through a crisis time. Donald Trump's been trying to build this damn wall for two years and can't get it done any other way. So this is the solution? It's all of a sudden a national emergency so you can grab more power? Give me a break. 519-643-2222. Bob? Yeah, well, I got to laugh again, Mike. I hear all the CNN reports coming out. Uh, but here, let's get real here. Number one, if you, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but if, have you seen Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, as well as um, Hillary Clinton and Obama, back in 2009 and forward from there? Go to YouTube, you'll see it. They're advocating for the wall. They recognize the crisis. They say it point blank. That's what they say. You see that on CNN? Oh, hell no. Uh, the other point I want to make is Obama issued 12 states of emergency when he was in power. Look oh, absolutely. Up. And this is this is not 
unprecedented, but the way that it's being used, does it not come off as, give me a break? No, no, like, let's get real here, Mike. And here, here's all the, see, this is what I can't stand is when people call up and they're ill-informed, low-information people. They see one side of things. They don't search for, for other information besides CNN or some other leftist extreme news <laughs> broadcast. Um, have you ever seen pictures of the border? Do you know people who live on that border down there, on that southern border, and what they go through every day? Well, you don't see it reported on the news or anything like that because they keep it from the public, right? So you have an extreme left biased outlook on this whole thing. Now, put yourself in, like, we're talking about this from 2,000 miles away. But what people fail to be able to do anymore is put yourself in a position of living along that border and look outside your window on a street. And just imagine that on one side of that street is Mexico and the other side is your backyard. And every day, hundreds of people are just jumping or coming over a fence or walking around open areas into your neighborhoods, and then you don't know who they are. People have fences around their homes. They lock their doors at night. Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and all these other Democrats against this, this movement for this barrier have walls around their house. Why? To keep them safe and their families safe. It's an absolute joke. They don't want it because it's Trump, because Trump beat them at their own game. He's an outsider. The deep state want him out. There's a coup against this guy, point blank a coup. Just look at the information coming out now against the FISA warrant and how many of those people uh, are going to be held responsible. It's coming. You're going to see subpoenas from people on the left. I can't wait to see what plays out. It's becoming more and more interesting. Bob, i got to run for news. Thank you so much for the thoughts. All right, Mike. All right, take care. We do have to run for news. We'll continue in just a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We'll talk some transportation on the show today. Again, in about an hour from now, the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade will join us on the future of Ontario's automotive sector and an announcement that came from this week. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with a guy who has helped to co-found Drop Bike. Ready for this? This is what Kingston and Kelowna is making use of. And we talked about this last week when we looked at bike-sharing services. The City of London is looking into them. So how exactly do these work? It's not just about bike-sharing, though. It comes down to micro-mobility. So we will talk micro-mobility in about 10 minutes from now. But I do want to make mention of a city report that has come out that is, in a way, a lot of fun to look at. Because when we talk about driving nuisances in the city of London, what would you say are some of the top driving nuisances? Failing to signal, yes, yes, you get cut off. What would maybe, that? that's probably number one. What's number two? The London left. That's why it's called the London left. I know it happens in other places, but essentially the way that a stoplight is supposed to work is you advance to the stop line and if the light is green and you cannot turn left as we have at so many different intersections in the city of London because of some of the traffic that we have, the first car can advance into the intersection and after the flow of traffic has stopped, they are able to make a left. A London left is anybody who makes a left in behind them and sometimes what? We go one, two, even three cars deep People deciding, well, I'm just going to go. And the other lights are already green, and you're still making your way through the intersection. That's a London left. 
So red light cameras were used. These were talked about a long time ago. Former London Mayor Joe Fontana used to talk about these. So we do have ourselves some red light cameras. And the City Report has now done the math on all of these red light cameras so far and has looked at how many tickets they're giving out per day. And they will no doubt declare this a success when it's brought to council next week. I mean, yeah, it's it's been a success. But here's the ultimate in all of this. Are we getting rid of the London left? Do you still see people doing the London left? I do. But is it happening less? And that's going to be the key. If you get slapped with a big old fine, you're going to think twice about doing it. Now, the program... Last year, according to the city report, earns nearly a million dollars. There are operating costs, so I think what the city winds up with is just under half a million dollars. I think operating costs work out to almost half when we look at a million dollars. So just under $500,000 is what they have. Most, I guess the, the most tickets handed out, it depends on when all of these cameras were installed, but... Queens Avenue and Adelaide, 1,366 tickets. And if you're looking at per day, because these were installed, remember, there are 10 of them, but they were put out at different times. If you are looking at the most per day, that's actually Queens Ave and Talbot. Really? Queens Ave and Talbot? And I guess, you know, you know what happens? If you've ever driven down Queens Ave... At the end of the day, so let's say 4.30. I don't recommend doing this. In fact, if you have a vehicle and you're in the downtown core and it's any time between 4.30 and 5.30, don't turn to go west on Queens Ave because that's everybody looking to get to anywhere that is west of Warncliffe. So you're going down Queens Ave and you're eventually going to go across the bridge and off you go down Riverside or then you make a turn onto Warncliffe and you get to where it is that you want to go. So Queens Ave and Talbot winds up being the worst in terms of offenders per day and it's probably because people get sick of sitting there. And so, well, I'm just going to go because I've been sitting here too long. I'm just going to go because I've been sitting here too long. And that's what we get. So, in other words, one of the other things that red light cameras should help is to identify some of those problem spots. And if you look, you say, no, I'm going to go up to Dufferin. I'm going to go Dufferin, and then I'm, I'm going to go in a different direction. So, if you look at the data, maybe it changes the way you drive, or maybe the city has to look and say, we need a provision for this. We need more of an advance, or we need an advance period in some of these intersections. So it's great data to go through. But it's out. It'll be presented to the city next week, and they can declare it a success. And if you are seeing fewer and fewer London lefts, then we've got to declare it a success unless you look back to what Councillor Michael Van Holst was saying right from the beginning of this that he would like to see some of the yellows and some of the advances increased in order to allow more people to turn. And I do think there there is merit to that. I really, really do. Let's take a quick break on London Live. We'll continue to talk some transportation. One of the co-founders of Drop Bike due to join us in the next few minutes, and we may tackle a little bit more on red light cameras as well. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
Happy day after Valentine's Day. We were talking yesterday about the importance of just trying. That guys hate it when they try and don't succeed. Women appreciate that. The minds of men and women, I don't know, we're probably heading in different directions on that one. Guys hate to try and fail. Women will look at that and say, oh, he tried. He tried. Here is a perfect example of this. Hartford, Kentucky. You've got a husband and wife, Alan and Nina Harris. They've been married since 2006. Alan and Nina are headed to bed, maybe last week, sometime before Valentine's Day. And Nina says to Alan, hey, honey, if you're going to get me anything for Valentine's Day, I'd really like some tulips. Then I could go outside and plant them and they would be able to come up every year. Alan was only halfway paying attention to that. It's called selective listening. And he heard not tulips, but turnips, and then thought, yeah, that's really practical, you know? Turnips would come up every year. This is a, this is a great idea. We'll be able to eat the turnips. So he went and got some turnips. And uh, she was a little confused. Now, Alan then realized his mistake, ran out, got tulips and balloons, But in the end, you know what Nina's line was? All I cared about was that he had tried. See? See? But I think we should focus in on that a little bit more maybe next year. The practicality of Valentine's Day. I don't understand fresh-cut flowers. I, I know that they're very popular. They die. They don't last very long. Turnips. They can last a long time. Turnips. They can feed you. Maybe we need to we need to explore. They're not as pretty. I'll admit that. Turnips are one of the ugliest vegetables out there. But seriously, I'm far more practical. Let's talk about something else that could be practical going forward into the future. And that is bike sharing. It gets you to a place quickly, gets you there cheaply, and it's something that London is looking into. Well, we happen to have one of the co-founders of Dropbike. And Dropbike is a service that you can actually find in a couple of cities right now. You can go and test it out this summer. It's a good excuse to go to Kelowna, B.C. If you've never been to Kelowna, B.C., it's gorgeous. It's fantastic. You can walk out of a house and pluck a peach off a tree. It's just amazing. But Afresh Gill has Dropbike going in Kelowna, in Kingston, and he joins us now to talk a little bit more about this. Afresh, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, You operate a company that makes us think that when the country of Australia said there would be all kinds of jobs that were about to be created that hadn't been thought of yet, I'm pretty sure micro-mobility was one of those ones that hadn't been thought of yet. Can you help us understand first what micro-mobility is? Absolutely. Um, you know, my, micro mobility is this idea that um, there is this uh, kind of sweet spot between, you know, walking certain distances and driving certain distances, right? And in transit um, uh, and in public policy, one of the uh, classic challenges has been the first and last mile, uh, uh, the first and last mile. How do you solve that? Because if you think about it, sometimes there's this range, you know, two to four to five miles where, um, you probably don't want to walk um, because it might be a little too long, but it also doesn't make sense to drive. So how do you how do you kind of fill that gap? And that's where uh, uh, 
micromobility comes into play. And what is micromobility to be specific? Well, it includes bikes, it includes electrified scooters, it includes electric assist bikes. And so today, um, because of the, uh, you know, the progress made on the technological side and on battery technology, um, organizations like ours have started to focus predominantly on electrified fleets, uh, on electric bikes, on electric scooters. And what we do is we partner up with municipalities and offer them micromobility solutions, you know, so that people in a community have a new mode of transit in addition to, the, for example, buses or subway systems or their own car and obviously walking. Now they have an option to uh, rely on these micro-electric fleets of uh, vehicles that they can use to travel certain distances. Now that kind of opens up a, a whole big picture of what future transit could be. And little by little, we're seeing cities kind of come on board with this. How do you convince cities that now is the right time for something like this? Right. I think, you know, I think um, cities have actually historically always been interested uh, in, in bike share, but there have been a few problems. Um, historically, bike share uh, has been quite inaccessible, right? So if you look at, um, you know, not to pick on the city of Toronto, but I live here, so, uh, and I, I've been a user, actually, of the bike share system here, but if you look at the city of Toronto, millions of dollars have been poured into building and scaling the bike share system here. Now, the issue is um, it serves uh, only 40 to 50% of the city's population, right? And the population that it serves... Um, happens to be living uh, in the uh, most dense areas of the city. So what happens is you end up leaving out um, a large percentage of the population that actually might need um, access to additional uh, um, uh, mobility um, uh, streams, if you will, uh, a lot more than people living in, let's say, downtown core, right? Um, and so that's, that's one interesting thing is the idea of accessibility due to cost. It's very expensive. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, and the second piece is, is, well, even if it was not expensive, regular bikes in suburban areas might not necessarily um, uh, make sense. And by regular bikes, I mean not non-electrified fleets, right? Because um, inherently, suburban neighborhoods are a lot more spread out. So you probably want an electric assist bike, right? I mean, imagine biking around and, and scorching heat in the summer, um, when you will need to go four kilometers, like that's that's quite the distance. You might as well just pick up your car, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so, so I think I think that there's there's this fine balance that what's happened with the advent of um, uh, obviously the smartphone, but also improvements um, on many areas in uh, all the way from supply chain to battery technology. What's happened is now cities have this option to rely on a electrified fleets and b. Uh, business model innovation in this space um, uh, has allowed for cities to not be so uh, to not have to dig into their pockets as much as they would have had to even three years ago or two years ago um, to offer offer a uh, you know whether it's bikes or scooters to their residents right so no here in Toronto we I think we've spent total about seven to ten million dollars um, and, uh, and and that's that's you know. I don't think that any city in the near future will be spending that much money uh, on micro mobility. Instead, cities can reinvest that capital into other uh, municipality needs.
We're talking with Avraj Gill, one of the co-founders of Drop Mobility. So even as we we look at what London's going to do, and they're kind of still in the decision-making process, we have questions that come in about, okay, how much does this cost for someone to get involved with, say, Drop Bike, where you have bikes that can go from one location to another? What does the city have to do in order to make that happen? That's a great question, uh, Mike. And I think, you know, the... Uh, the, the answer is it really depends on uh, one of the biggest things that we've learned um, as an organization and, and things, one of the things I've learned as an entrepreneur in this space, you know, speaking with dozens of cities across North America, is every city um, has very different transit needs and challenges, right? And so um, there are different operating models uh, that might work in different cities. There are different fleets that might work better in some cities relative to other cities, um, and there are also different um, ways to finance systems that might be more relevant to a certain city than other cities, right? So, for example, does a city have the right amount of public infrastructure, access to bike racks and bike posts that would allow for a micromobility system to thrive? So these, these are all things that we discuss with city officials um, once the city is ready to kind of dive in and, and learn a little bit more. Um, and our goal and this is something that we strive to do as an organization. Um, our goal is to make sure that despite a uh, city's financial situation and the financial constraints, um, uh, you know, every city should have access uh, to providing micromobility to their, uh, to their, to their residents. Like we, we believe mobility should be a, uh, you know, a human right. Um, if people want to get from point A to point B in an affordable manner, in an accessible manner, they should be able to. Um, so, you know, if you can't take that bus for whatever reason, because, um, you know, it's a little, your bus station is a little too far, uh, and you, you don't have the affordability, uh, to, to buy a car, um, uh, and obviously if you can't walk, uh, because the distance is too far. So we, we want those folks to be able to have access to something like this. And so it really all starts from having a conversation, uh, with cities and, and just taking it from there. Is there an overhead for a city to pay, or is it one of those things that kind of works like Uber or another another ride sharing service app? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in terms of it, overhead, it depends on the size of the fleet. Um, it depends again on the type of operation. We have worked with cities where cities have uh, partnered up with us in investing in the fleet, right? And we have a revenue share relationship with that city. Uh, we also have cities uh, that. Uh, you know, we're willing to welcome such a large system uh, because it just made sense and, and, you know, the operating model seemed to be the right fit, et cetera, et cetera, where we were able to uh, bear the initial investment as an organization in, in that city. Um, so, they, again, it takes different forms, but we haven't had, uh, let me just say, we haven't had a single situation where because of the financial constraints that a city had, they weren't able to bring uh, micromobility into their city. So we haven't had a single instance, and I think that's the beauty of, of um, you know, the uh, flexibility that we've developed, not just as an organization, but this industry has developed. Well, it's fantastic to learn more about micromobility. Afraj, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Afraj Gill from Drop Bike. 
on micro-mobility. We will take a break. We've had some requests. We don't get requests in talk radio a lot. It's not like, hey, can you play Michael Jackson's Beat It? I haven't heard that in a long time. We don't get that in talk radio, but we have had a request or two now, and I think we can fill both of them. Tell you how next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Richard mentioned Craig Needles, Needles on the record, on the Amber Alert. And now we've just had another request that has come in, one by Twitter, two by email. Hey, I didn't hear that. Could you play that? We don't get a chance to play things. This this is great. Yes, absolutely we can play that. We'll play it after news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Plus, we'll talk with Colin James. He's on his way to London in April. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It is Friday, and coming up this hour, we are going to take a trip to Toronto. We are going to be able to speak with the general manager of the Toronto International Auto Show, find out some of the new things that are coming there. It's also All-Star Weekend in the NBA. Have you seen the new jersey they rolled out? Their theme this year was what the NBA would be like in 2038, and so they, they bring in... This jersey, which changes from Steph Curry to a Michael Jordan jersey. The idea that you could have an electronic name on the back. How about that? i got to get my son one of those. Because every once in a while, he'll get a jersey, and the guy will then, in about six months, be traded. It just happens. He has that ability. And so I think that would be the thing for fans right there. There's no way the NBA would do this, though. You know how much revenue you'd be turning down unless this jersey costs $3,000, in which case nobody's buying that. I don't think it will. They're just showing off some nice new ideas, some far too new, some futuristically new. And so we'll see how long it takes before guys can switch the name and number on their jersey during games. I do play-by-play for hockey. Please don't switch your number during games. It's hard enough to remember the first number. We have a news station. We are a news talk station at Global News Radio 980 CFPL, and we are proud of it. And we work very hard every day to provide you great information and great news coverage. The one thing we never get to do is play requests. No one has called us today to say, yeah, can you uh, play Inner Sandman by Metallica? Sometimes that will happen because they're trying to call FM 96. Hey, uh, can you play something uh, right now by Keith Urban? I just That means you're trying to get through to Country 104. Or we'll get calls every once in a while. Yeah, um, I got my niece over and I'm wondering, could you play something by Taylor Swift? That again, wrong number. Please call Fresh Radio. And, you know, they can they can help you out. We never get to play requests until today. Guess what? Richard talked last hour about Craig Needles, Needles on the Record today, which talked about the Amber Alert. And I'm still at one tweet and two emails, but that's enough. Three requests for one thing, That's that's all we need. If you have not heard Craig Needles and what he said, about the Amber Alert? Well, by request from 2019, here is Craig Needles. 
And now, Needles on the Record on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Nobody likes to be woken up in the middle of the night. I get that. It's jarring and you take some time to get back to sleep. I understand it's a little bit frustrating. However, you probably have to realize that sometimes that wake up might be a bit of a necessity. In this case, there were dozens of people tweeting angrily about getting woken up by an Amber Alert last night. As you know, if you've listened to the news at all today, the little girl who's a subject of the Amber Alert, the 11-year-old, was subsequently killed. It's a very sad story and shows how petty the gripes are about the Amber Alert system. This was an important story, and the fact is, the person who suspected in this murder was arrested because of the Amber Alert that was set out to everyone's cell phones and put on everyone's televisions and interrupted their shows and all of this stuff. The system worked in this case. We should be appreciative of the system, not complaining about it. Listen to The Craig Needles Show weekdays from 9 to noon on 980 CFPL. Craig did hit it right. And if you missed it off the beginning, if you didn't like it or if you took the time to call police because you thought it was police who were putting this out, first of all, you're very misinformed. Um... Here's what you need to do. You need to take your phone, you need to drop it in the toilet and leave it there for 20 seconds, reach in, get it, take it to an electronics disposal outlet and give it to them because you obviously don't know what a phone is for. So please know that this is a good thing. Unfortunately, it had a tragic ending this time, but this is what the system was designed to do. And the fact that everybody was getting this one does show, as Craig said, the system's working. Up next, we are going to be joined by a six-time Grammy Award winner by a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Colin James is next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Mark down a date. April 8th, it's a Monday, 7.30. This guy comes to town. That is Colin James, and that right there is from his album just released last year, Miles to Go. That's called 40 Light Years. He is coming in to do some new stuff, some old stuff, but right now we have an opportunity to talk with Colin James on London Live. Colin, thanks so much for being a part of London Live. Of course. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Junos to begin with. You are a guy that knows what it's like to win Junos, and we've got the awards ceremony coming here. Anything that stands oh, out right. to you when when the Junos are coming to town and, <laughs> and you're a big part of them? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I've had over the years some amazing experiences with the Junos. You know, it's like... Uh, I'm trying to think. What one of my favorite memories is? Uh, I'm playing the first song of the well, twice I've had <laughs> I've been playing the first song of the night in my life. But this was Voodoo Thing in the earliest of days, and uh, Anne Murray was in the front row, and I knew that, and I never really laid eyes on Anne Murray before. And as the curtain was coming up, my guitar uh, pedal died on me, <laughs> like just all the lights went black on the on the pedal board. So I just leaned up and I, I kicked it as hard as I could and all the lights went on and the thing went up and off went the song. So that was it. There's my story. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> now, hey, how common is something like that for musicians where the curtain is rising or, you know, the the first act ends and, and you're running on stage and you look down and, and something's not right? Is that rare? Uh, 
not at all. <laughs> Best laid plans, you know. Uh, yeah, that does always uh, go according to plan. That's all. Now, when you look up at a situation like that, and you are seeing your peers, you are performing not for just your fans, but for people in the industry. How different is that? Sometimes it's been pretty cool because you're playing, you know, you're playing live, and it's, it's uh, it can be really fun. And the sound sound can be an issue, but I've, I've usually enjoyed. We did a catalog. I think we did a let's shout. We opened up at Let's Shout with the Little Big Band one time, and that was a lot of fun too. But no, that can be a good good time. I remember the Junos in Vancouver years ago when Celine Dion. I, I want to. I think I want a couple that night, and Celine Dion took home three and she was just brand new out of the scene and i remember that night particularly too colin james with us on london live colin will be at budweiser gardens april 8th at seven thirty. if we look at the way that, that you kind of started your career the people you got to play with pretty early on like a george thorogood uh, a john lee hooker you had time with stevie ray vaughn early on how did all of that come together that's just a long story of just keeping on, you know, moving to different places until you got to where you needed to go and taking advantage when uh, opportunity came up. You know, when I was 16, I opened up for Thorogood and, and Johnny Hooker and started a little band and would just kind of do this triangle around the prairies. And, um, you know, later on, I, I played with other people that, that, that got me out there. But um, I was looking through some old photos yesterday and, you know, it's just, uh, I think back on the times I got to play with Albert Collins, who was such a fantastic guitar player. And, you know, a lot of the people I always wanted to meet and play with, I had a chance to meet. It was just, I was very lucky that way. But you're, you're saying you were 16 years old and you're opening for Thurgood. I mean, what do your friends and family say to that? Well, I, I just remember, you know, uh, being really excited about it and, uh, because I did a few gigs like that. I opened up for Little River Band one time when like the audience did not want to hear what I was doing at all. So I had a couple rough experiences early on that way, too. But, uh, no, it was really exciting. It was just, you know, Ian Stewart was playing keyboards, the guy from the Stones, uh, when I opened up for Thurgood back then. I remember walking up to him and saying, uh, I hear you played with the Stones. <laughs> he went, I am a Stone, is what he said to me. I think he was drunk. <laughs> We're talking with Colin James, <laughs> telling some stories on a Friday afternoon. Colin is at Budweiser Gardens on Monday, April the 8th. Do you have an opportunity as a young guy to, to ask questions about the craft, to ask questions about playing, things like that? How do you mean? To, to, to people like that? Yeah, when, when you're 16 you years know, old. Not, no, not really. You know, I mean, in those cases, we did three shows in a row, and over the years, I've done a whack of shows with George Thurgood. You know, later on, Stevie was the one guy where, you know, I was lucky enough to hear, have him sit across from me a few times and play. You know, and and I wish I could freeze those moments now. <laughs> I wish I could relive them now because he would sit and play a thing that I always wanted to know how to play in front of me, and I'd I'd ask him to do it again and. You know, I wish those are the moments I wish I could. Uh, in, in the case of, you know, like I got to play with Carlos Santana years ago, and I was a huge Santana. I grew up listening to Santana. Uh, you know, it was a trip. I just got to sit and talk to him before we went on, and then he got me up for the healer uh, one night, the one he did with John Lee Hooker. And those are just those moments where, you, you know, 
you just can't believe it. <laughs> Carlos Santana, you know, so uh, love those moments. When you're sitting there with those guys, whether it is Carlos Santana, whether it's Stevie Ray Vaughan, and you're watching them play, do you become a, a fan for a second, or are you watching to see how they're doing things as a fellow guitarist? What are you doing? Well, they all, they all I mean, all those guys. You know, Albert Collins was a crazy good guitar player, as was Stevie. Stevie was breathtaking. I mean, you know, there's just nothing... Uh, I, I, I just, you know, there's nothing to describe what seeing him was like. It was like, uh, it, it was so amazing. It was almost too much. <laughs> it was how good he was. So uh, I can't say enough about that. And, uh, you know, those days in the early days, we got to open up for Keith Richards on his ticket so hard to her. Those were amazing to see him in those 2,000 seat venues with the, with the expensive wine. All that stuff was amazing to be, to be there for, you know. Yeah. Is the old story true about you and Stevie Ray Vaughan that you got to open the show because an opening act couldn't make it? They, well, no, they got fired. Um, it's even uh, better then. Working out. Yeah, they weren't working out with this, this, this. I guess whatever the vibe was, I wasn't there for the previous shows, but they got let go in Edmonton. That's what I remember. I got a kind of a frantic call saying, "Can you be in Saskatoon tomorrow by you know by five in the afternoon for Loden?" And I had to lie and sort of tell tell people I had a band that I didn't have, and then I had to scramble and phone the Jazz Society, <laughs> the Saskatoon Jazz. Anyway, it's just hilarious. And I, I found these guys to play with me, and we got together before the show. And uh, Stevie came busting in the room and said, "Is it true that you guys just met each other?" <laughs> I said, "Yes." How did he react to that? Was he okay with it? He just thought it was hilarious. Uh, uh, you know, we were rehearsing in this little room, you know, just trying to go over some shuffles, just something to get us through the night, you know, because I wasn't going to say no. I wanted to be there. I was a huge Stevie fan, so I wasn't going to say no. We are talking with Colin James, a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, a six-time Juno Award winner, a guy who's going to be at Budweiser Gardens on Monday, April the 8th at 7.30. You have covered such a wide range of music. Is there a favorite that you have? Is there a favorite style that you have? You know, over the years, you kind of look back at your records, you know, and you, you, you'll always have two or three favorites from a record. You may have one or two that you're not so crazy about. You evolve as you go on, and, um, and sometimes things that you didn't fully appreciate later on, you go, yeah, that was a pretty good song. So uh, it changes as, as you grow, you know, with these shows, you know, in an hour and a half or two-hour show, you know, it's hard to get to. You can only do so much, so you have to kind of try to plan it accordingly. And that will be my job this month. You know, we're, we're getting ready for uh, rehearsals and, uh, and the technical aspect of things. But I'm really looking forward to it. Um, um, I'm looking forward to getting together and uh, getting, you know, we, we, you know, everything from the... There was a time I wouldn't play some of the older material, but, but I've gotten a little easier about that now because I just think that you realize... You know, you had a hit and it connected with people and, uh, you know, it's good to give them some of that too. So it's just trying to find the right balance, right? The more you do something, the better you get at it. When you take some of your older stuff and you do it now, do you do it differently? 
Oh, yeah. And I think some of them benefit from it. Um, you know, obviously in the 80s and 90s, there was some production questionability. You look back now on certain product. you know, remember the days of the big fat food snare that, <laughs> you know, you look back at some of those mixes now. But and sometimes it's fun to do it exactly like the, the original. Sometimes sometimes I'll do, keep, like, Keep on Loving Me, Baby, for instance. I'll, some days I'll do it a little more in keeping with the Otis Rush version. And some days I'll think way more ZZ Top or I'll think more, you know. So it just depends on how you're feeling on the day. Does a producer that you've worked with on an album kind of change a sound every once in a while, or does that does that more come from you or from the band? In the last couple records that I've done, it comes more from me probably. But in the past, Certain producers have totally different styles. Uh, uh, you know, to bring up, you know, sad news, a producer who I loved to work with uh, was a guy named Joe Hardy who passed just two or three days ago, sadly. And Joe was a frequent collaborator with ZZ Top. Um, um, he did, he's playing bass on that last Billy Gibbons record. And he produced Sudden, he produced Sudden Stop for me and Little Big Band too, but he did just came back and... Uh, Joe was a fantastic engineer, and he did, um, you know, uh, uh, Mad Mad World for Tom Cochran and uh, Steve Earle's Copperhead Road and uh, uh, Don't Give Me No Hands, Keep Your Hands to Yourself for the Georgia Satellites. Just a legacy of fantastic mixing, and uh, we'll, we'll miss him. But, yeah, every producer has a different uh, style. When I did the record... Um, in Los Angeles with Mark Howard out of Hamilton, but now lives in you know he lives in Toronto right now, but he's been living in L.A. He you know he really tried to get me to darken guitar tones and um, uh, use different different tones. So everyone has a different taste, and sometimes it's good to change out of your comfort zone. You know? Colin James will be at Budweiser Gardens Monday, April eighth at seven thirty. Colin, to finish off, does it ever get old to walk out on stage and do what you do? No, man, because, like, it's kind of what I always wanted to do. So when I get out there and have a chance to do it night after night, it's just, it's just a, it's a fantastic feeling to be with a bunch of the band that you, you know, you, you, um, you start rolling and you start getting the show tights. And it, it's just a great feeling. Right? You know, that's what, that's what you do it for. You know, you do it for that, that working ethic where you're out there and you're playing and you're getting stronger. And I love that. Well, hey, it's been a pleasure spending some time with you. Enjoy the trip through the tour and certainly enjoy the stop in London. Colin, all the best. Congratulations on what you've done. Thank you so much. Colin James, member of Canada's Music Industry Hall of Fame, six-time Juno Award winner, a guy who's got 18 studio albums. He's done R&B, he's done big band, he's done rock, and he's got some great stories. Yeah, first act of the Junos, the curtain is coming up. You look down and all the lights go out in front of you on all your guitar pedals, and you don't know. Good swift kick, boom, they're back on. That's fantastic. And when you look at the Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff, it's He's pretty modest about it, honestly. He's pretty modest about the fact that when he was that young, he was playing with George Thorogood, and he was playing with Stevie Ray Vaughan. And look at the courage that it took. That I don't know if you've ever heard that Stevie Ray Vaughan story before, but for somebody to call him, not Stevie Ray Vaughan, but somebody to call and say, hey, Stevie Ray Vaughan's doing a show in Saskatoon tomorrow night. Can you open the show? And... Immediately, you just say yes. Yes, I can do that. 
and then you hang up the phone and you realize, but I don't have a band. I have I could go out there just me. So that would be one choice. Instead, he calls the Jazz Association. Did he say Jazz Association in Saskatoon? Rounds up some musicians, and Stevie Ray Vaughan walks in and goes, so you guys just met, and you're playing my show, and finds it hilarious, and you go on. That's good stuff. News is coming up next, and then we are going to talk automotive sector and automobiles. We'll talk with Todd Smith, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation, and Trade on the future of the automotive sector in Ontario. And we'll also talk with the general manager of the Toronto International Auto Show. All of that coming up. Before the show ends today, this is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This week, there was a very interesting announcement from the Ontario government, and we get a chance to find out more about what you may have heard. It was about a 10 year vision for how the automotive industry, automotive sector, could live its future. So, a 10 year vision. Joining us right now to discuss the finer points of this is the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, Minister Todd Smith. Minister Smith, thanks so much for being here on London Live. Hi, Mike. Happy to be here. Let's go through this. Let's talk about, first of all, the genesis of this. What prompted a 10-year vision in the automotive sector? Well, we've been meeting with folks in the auto sector for uh, several months now, uh, looking back uh, to prior to the GM unfortunate news that we received uh, at Oshawa, um, we knew that we had to do something to increase c- competition and our competitiveness uh, in Ontario uh, because we were hearing directly from those auto manufacturers and those downstream in the supply chain that it was getting tough to be competitive in the global market uh, that, that auto has become. Uh, so we needed to uh, reduce red tape, and we immediately started with that when we became the government back in July um, with the Making Ontario Open for Business Act, which repealed a lot of Bill 148, which was crushing for the auto industry. Uh, so that was our first step. And then uh, we have now introduced this 10-year vision driving prosperity, the future of Ontario's automotive sector, which speaks more to some of the more intricate details around the auto sector, like training and innovation, uh, the talent piece, and, and still ensuring Ontario's competitiveness and looking for places where we can attract new OEMs, new auto manufacturers, to the province. When do you see this going into effect? Well, it's in effect now, actually. Uh, We're looking forward to getting out there and selling Ontario as a great place for OEMs to locate and to business. We're building over 2 million cars in Ontario right now, which is by far uh, the largest auto manufacturing jurisdiction in North America. Uh, And we want to continue to add to that. We have room to add to that. We have a great supply chain. We have over 200 businesses that are working in the tech sector. That's the, the interesting thing is that it's it's kind of blurred now between what is an automotive job and what is a tech job because they're so intertwined. There's over 200 businesses working uh, together there in the auto sector. Uh, but we just needed to make sure that some of the finer details were being looked after. I know you've heard of Ray Tangay. He's the former president of Toyota uh, Global or Toyota Canada, I should say. And and he put together uh, a report a few years back that kind of sat on a shelf with the Liberals and gathered dust. So a lot of what we unveiled uh, yesterday at Woodbridge Auto in uh, in in Woodbridge um, uh, deals with some of those things that needed to be looked after that were identified in Ray Tangay's report a number of years back. 
Todd Smith, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, joining us on London Live as we talk about a 10-year vision from the Ontario government and the future of the automotive sector. Minister Smith, you brought up Oshawa and the idea that, you know, nothing has been able to kind of turn away from that decision by GM or be able to, to help those workers in staying put in Oshawa in those jobs. But when we look at the automotive sector, is it that we're looking to to attract what the automotive sector is going to be in the future? Do you have to kind of predict that a little bit? Because, you know, GM's saying, no, we're, we're not doing it the way we have been doing it. We've got to do this so that we can survive. Yeah, we have to work with the sector. I mean, we have to make sure that we're taking steps uh, that are in partnership with the sector. They're going to decide, or the market is actually going to decide what's next. Is it going to be electric vehicles? Is it going to be internal combustion engines? Is it going to be, you know, hydrogen fuel cells? It's going to be up to the market to decide that, but it's the, it's the research and development teams and those innovation teams within the auto sector that uh, are constantly developing uh, the next car, the car of the future, automated vehicles, connected vehicles. And uh, so a lot of what we announced yesterday in our AVIN program, the Autonomous Vehicle Innovation Network, was um, you know increasing our commitment to that sector. And, and the thing to keep in mind is that every dollar that we announced yesterday has to be matched by industry. So, you know, we want uh, the sector and clearly the sector is going to continue to evolve and, and we want to be a partner in that as we look forward to the next steps. As far as Oshawa is concerned, um, you know, clearly they made a, a decision uh, to get out of, um, not entirely, but get out of the car business and focus more on the SUV and crossover and, and pickup truck stream, which is what people are buying these days and what they're really good at. And uh, as you know, down in Ingersoll, not far from where you are right now, uh, they're continuing to pump out the Equinox, which is a, a great vehicle, and they're selling all kinds of them on both sides of the border. Minister Smith, you've talked about the the competition that Ontario provides, the fact that we do manufacture still a lot of vehicles. You've talked about the innovation side that was announced. As far as talent goes, sometimes we'll have people looking outside of this province for jobs, and when you start seeing, uh-oh, no Oshawa, people get that thought that, ah, okay, well, this isn't the place to be if that's what I'm being trained for. How do we make Ontario attractive for people to stay? Well, I, I think training them for the jobs of the future is is what we committed to yesterday, and that was a big part of Ray Tangay's report, the, the former auto czar. Um, he, he, uh, he talked about the need for... Uh, more internships, more experiential learning opportunities, uh, a micro-credentialing pilot for, for folks. So when, when, when people like those great workers at GM in Oshawa lose their job, uh, there's an opportunity for them to get the micro-credentialing uh, that they need so that they can get another job uh, with another automaker um, or maybe move to another GM uh, facility and be a part of the auto auto sector without having to go back to school for two full years or four full years, they can get the uh, training that they need for that job uh, immediately so that they can continue to be employed in the sector. So, you know, I think um, there's a bright future for Ontario's auto sector. We're starting to turn around some of the things that were holding Ontario back as far as the competitiveness feature goes. And, and these are now the next steps in making sure that we have the workforce of the future and the car uh, of the future and being part of that whole process. Minister Smith, thank you so much for your time today. Anytime, Mike. All the best. That is the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade.
Minister Todd Smith on the announcement this week. It was made actually yesterday on the future of Ontario's automotive sector. So, again, it does depend where it's going. I mean, we talked last hour about drop bike, which is a way that Kingston and Kelowna have seen success. And we've talked with a government official in Kingston who has said, yeah, you know what, this program works. That's why we're doing it. And it does allow people to move around. And that's kind of been the way that we've been acting since we tied horses to wagons and said there's got to be a faster way than these old feet. And now what do we have? Well, we have kind of an uncertain future. How are people going to move around? What are we going to be doing? Are we going to see autonomous vehicles? I mean, I used to jump up and down with all that I would read about autonomous vehicles and think, this is the future. And then I started reading more things like, hey, if you think it's congested now, just wait until it's cheaper to have your autonomous vehicle drive the streets than it is to park in downtown Toronto. You'll just have more of them out there. Or people can just continually drive. If you put a bed in your autonomous vehicle... Hey, after an eight-hour sleep, you can be in a lot of places. You can be in Chicago. I'd do that. Sleep in a little bit more. You could be in Boston. Wow, that's not bad. But again, congestion becomes an issue. So what do we have for the future? Well, to close out the show today, we might be able to get a little view of that future. Up next, we'll be talking with the general manager of the Toronto International Auto Show, which opens today. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Thanks so much for being here. Let's talk about the present and as usually is even more impressive, the future of automobiles. The Canadian International Auto Show is underway today at the Metro Toronto Convention Center, and the general manager joins us now, Jason Campbell. Jason, thanks for taking some time out. Oh, my pleasure. Let's look at maybe what your favorite part is. There is so much to walk through, but if if you were to open the doors, because you of all people being the general manager of the show can walk in at different times, where do you run first? Well, I, I, obviously the main show floor is a highlight for many people. There's a lot of people shopping for cars. We've got a thousand cars on show here. And every brand that sells in Canada is represented on the show floor, which is pretty unique amongst any global auto show. There's a lot of shows like Detroit, for instance, which for many years was kind of the icon of the car industry. It's really suffered and gone down. I think they lost nine manufacturers this year. But uh, Toronto, we are fully packed, and not only with the mainstream cars, but you've also got a lot of feature exhibits, which this year I think is better than we've ever had. Now, when you look at, at the, I guess, the problems that Detroit is going through, what do you feel is an issue there that maybe you haven't had to experience? Well, as you know, cars are becoming much more like um, technological showpieces, and there's a major show that's really taken over Detroit, which is called CES. It takes place a week before Detroit, and it's the Consumer Electronics Show, and it's where many of the manufacturers have taken their latest and greatest creations and basically debuted them there, and it's difficult to do both CES and then Detroit a week later. And so Detroit has, over the last four or five years, been getting the kind of also rans and uh, many manufacturers have just said you know what it's uh, better to focus on de- 
on the CES show, and we'll skip Detroit. But that uh, has not been the case in our market. We've got a big market of potential buyers. We're about 7 million consumers within uh, two hours of Toronto. So it's a show, as our show has grown, um, we've maintained all of our manufacturer interest and attracted new uh, supercar manufacturers. We've had some really exotic manufacturers bringing their cars here, as, uh, as is the case again this year. Jason Campbell, General Manager of the Canadian International Auto Show, with us. 2019 show opens today, extends through until the 24th at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Manufacturers will bring a, a lot of really unique vehicles to a show like yours, but are you seeing are you seeing maybe trends at all from the manufacturers in terms of what they want to show off? Well, many of the shows... Uh, have often features concept cars, and those are really interesting because it drives uh, halo awareness of their brands. Uh, electric vehicles, uh, despite the relatively small take-up in terms of overall percentage of sales, are still a big focus uh, here at the show. We've got 18 electric vehicles available for test drives here at the show, which is bigger than we've ever had. And we've just seen uh, the Jaguar I-Pace, the fully electric car, win the Utility of the Year award uh, by Ajax yesterday when the media day opened. Uh, so that is a big focus on manufacturers because globally that is the trend and it's inevitably down the road as infrastructure improves more and more of our lineups will have uh, electrification either fully or certainly part of the hydro uh, plane in terms of even McLaren supercar builder uh, yesterday had a conference here where they're talking about all of their lineup will have some form of electrification in the next 10 years. So it's uh, it's an area where manufacturers are really investing heavily in and, and what they're talking about. But our show consumers are still really going for the SUVs. The CUVs are, are big interest, and it's been a big trend in the auto sector. Sales of those uh, brands are going up, and the traditional sedans uh, have, have not as, uh, been keeping as much interest. Jason, it's one thing to walk around and look with your eyes. You mentioned the words test drive, that there are test drives available. Is that something you've got to pre-register for? No, you can show up on the day and uh, pick your favorite. We've got 11 brands uh, showcasing 18 different cars. Some are hybrids and uh, most are fully electric. And so for those who have never experienced what a fully electric car is like to drive, here's a great opportunity to do it. There's uh, experts that will ride along with you, give you impartial advice, and uh, get a feel for yourself whether you think that new experience is something you'd like to do and for those that have a relatively uh, you know, reasonable average commutes on a daily basis many people will find it a, an exceptional way to get around and uh, cost savings for them in their day-to-day -day travel costs excellent well before we close out opens today runs through the 24th what are the hours for this weekend if somebody wants to make the drive down from london to maybe make an even better drive in toronto well, we're open at 10.30 until 10 at night each day, and uh, we're expecting a, another really uh, packed crowds. We've got a very big excitement in the Lego Bugatti. It's a full-size, uh, full-running Lego uh, made of a million Lego bricks. We've got big features from Barrett-Jackson with a lot of muscle cars, and uh, Devil 16 is a, an amazing hypercar out of Dubai that's showing for the first time here, and a lot of interest in that. And how much of the Lego car is Lego? There's only the wheels and the tires, which aren't Lego. Everything else is powered by Lego, not glued. 
and uh, the Lego designer is here today talking through the uh, intricacies of making it work. It's only the third showing it's had. It's been launched at the Monza Grand Prix. It was at the Paris Auto Show, and here's the third global stop on its tour. Now, wait a minute. This is not just a car that you take off a truck, put on display. Can it actually move? Oh, it actually moves, yeah. It goes up to 30 kilometers an hour, an electric power plant. And uh, it's built around the Lego Bugatti Chiron. It's about, uh, I was asking the designer, how much does it cost? He said, not quite as much as the real thing, but pretty close. Oh, that's amazing. All right, well, just one of the things that you can see at the Canadian International Auto Show opens today. Jason, thanks for making some time for us today on London Live. Thank you very much. We hope to see many of your uh, listeners up here. Hope so. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jason Campbell, general manager of the Toronto International Auto Show, Canadian International Auto Show, depending on what name you want to use. It's underway right now. And, yeah, the Lego Bugatti. I didn't think this thing moved. I've seen a picture of it, but there's no way I thought that that moved. It can go 30 kilometers an hour. And the only thing that isn't Lego, the tires and the wheels. Wow, that's wild. Let's take a break. We'll close out the show in a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. London Knights take on the Erie Otters tonight at Budweiser Gardens. We talked earlier this week. I always love it. In a way, it kind of sounds weird to love it, but I always love it when the Knights don't win a game or don't win a couple of games in a row. Last weekend, they lost twice. They lost in Saginaw, but they took 58 shots, and then they lost on Sunday in a quick turnaround to Sault Ste. Marie. And you get a lot of emails and tweets saying, here's what they need to do. Here's what they're not doing. Here's what's wrong. And then they go out on Wednesday and they beat the Guelph Storm 6-1. to Guelph's a really good team. And although Guelph will tell you they didn't play their best game, the Knights had to do a lot of good things in order to win. Here's one last thing. I know being a fan of anything, it's fun to ride the highs and the lows. But to survive something, especially in the world of sports, Grant Fuhrer used to say it. You know, Grant, how have you done it all these years? Because he played with those Oilers teams, and then he kept going through St. Louis and played with the Leafs and the Flames, even a little bit with the Oilers, I think. And he would go, never get too high, never get too low. And while you don't want to live your entire life like that, because you want to you ride highs and lows of life, it's, it's part of living. That's the way you survive the year. Just in case there are two losses in a row between now and the end of the season – Don't worry. Knights have proven they're going to be ready, and they're going to be a tough team to beat once the playoffs begin. They take on the Erie Otters tonight. We'll have coverage starting at 6.30. Up next, we have news with Jacqueline LaBelle. Thanks so much to Matt McInnes for all his help. London Live, brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist. Remember, they do renovations too. You are listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.